Shifting borders. Tergir al hududi. Verschiebene Grenzen. Bedalte simai. Deixen sinerlar. Welcome to Shifting Borders. Dvirushise granitze. Fronteras movidizas. Bienjie juani. Badali sarhedo. Tohu biktigal. A podcast series by Princeton University students about how the forces of nationalism and identity shape people around the world. I'm series host Luke Mauer. And over the next five episodes, I'll be introducing you to Princeton classmates who've reported and produced stories that include the weaponization of headscarves, the erasure of inconvenient history, and the awkward dance of adjustment between refugees and the societies taking them in. Today's episode, our first, is called Not One of Us. It's about the way nationalism targets something personal to control public opinion. For more, I'll hand the mic over to the hosts for this episode, Sristi Ghosh and Nahina Lankanau. Thanks, Luke, and hello, everyone. I'm Sristi Ghosh. And I'm Rahina Lankanau. Welcome to the first episode of our five-part podcast series, Shifting Borders. It's called Not One of Us, and if you can't tell from the title, it's about the way in which nationalists, out of fear of losing their conception of European identity, are creating the distinction between who belongs and who doesn't. Rahina and I are going to be sharing a couple of stories today about what this looks like in Switzerland and France, where everyday parts of culture from clothing to food are being targeted. We're so excited to kick off the series, but before we do, just for a little bit of context, we thought we'd speak to Sofia Winograd, a friend and classmate who just recently wrote her senior thesis on the far-right dynamics as they play out in the European Parliament. Yeah, she's our resident expert. Here she is now. Hi guys, I'm Sophia. It's so nice to be here. I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I have done a lot of research on nationalism in Europe over the past year. So tell us, first things first, in the European context, what does nationalism look like in recent years? Where do I begin? Um, nationalism has arisen out of a backlash to hyperglobalization, a refugee crisis which completely overwhelmed the EU and deeply felt economic disillusionment, which grew out of the 2008-2009 economic crisis. So does nationalism mean the same thing throughout the continent? Well, no, actually. They have a few core themes that seem to tie all of them together, like their vehement anti-immigrant sentiment. But nationalism is actually quite hard to define because it manifests itself so differently in different countries. And this is kind of what I wrote about in my thesis. Um, a key finding was that nationalism can be combined with very diverse political goals and ideologies. Interesting. So how does this play out? So the bottom line is that nationalism isn't a policy. It's more of a political strategy of advocating for the people of that specific nation um, above everyone else. So for example, many of Europe's nationalists are deeply skeptical of the European Union because it takes power away from the individual nation. Right. I'm curious what you think has brought about the rise of nationalism or what is attracting people to the far right? Well, like I said earlier, it's the backlash, but it's also difficult to say because the typical far right voter doesn't look the same throughout Europe. So in some countries, it's mostly low income disillusioned people where in others, the far right is attracting people from more middle to high income brackets even. So it's hard to pinpoint or specify when it comes to the far right. Again, that's been a major finding of my thesis that beyond their common themes of anti-immigration and xenophobia, Europe's nationalists diverge quite significantly from one another. 
So what does that look like on the ground then, like in the day-to-day lives of people? So for a lot of people, it's a, it's a deep resentment towards foreigners. Um, they're afraid that they're losing their country and their country will become diluted. And they're frustrated at the government and feel betrayed that they're not hearing them. So the far right was a way for a lot of these people to voice their concerns and protest against this mainstream political establishment, which they really feel ignored by. There's also a deeply embedded racism and xenophobia. So European nationalists use some of the same tactics as former President Trump and his supporters in America? Yeah, especially against the migrants coming to Europe in 2015 and 2016, because most of these refugees were coming from predominantly Muslim countries like Syria and Iraq. So why Muslims in particular? Well, some of Europe's nationalists actually believe that Muslim culture is fundamentally inferior and they don't want these refugees coming in and taking over Europe. So a lot of it stems from a desire to keep Europe homogenous, racially, culturally, and religiously. Basically, it seems like a lot of fear-mongering. Exactly. And that's actually a perfect segue to our first story. It's a story about what it feels like to be the target of fear-mongering because of your religious beliefs because you are a Muslim woman who chooses to cover her face with a veil as a sign of respect to God. And this story is also about sisterhood, about a Swiss Muslim activist who sees the vilification of the veil as an assault on all women. So let's meet this activist. Her name is Ines El Sheikh. Hi, how are you? Hey, how are you? Ines was born in 1981 in Geneva, a Swiss city that's known as a global center for diplomacy and finance. I was born here in Switzerland, in Geneva. She has this lovely accent that sounds quintessentially European. I started questioning my own experiences as um, a woman of color. But she says the Swiss don't see her that way. There was never, ever a single person who I met in my life that did not ask me, where do you come from, really? Her parents are immigrants from Egypt and Tunisia. She was just five years old when she first realized that her fellow Swiss citizens did not see her as one of them. At school, we had this, uh, you know, children's book to to read. And most of the children in the the class could not read easily, uh, whereas I was uh, very fluent already in, in reading. And uh, after I read my part, no, I was feeling proud of myself. But the teacher turned to the older children saying, aren't you ashamed that she's not even Swiss and she can read better than you? As if the natural order of things uh, was that I should be behind them, not better than them. It left her heartbroken. The place I call home does not want to call me one of them. She also noticed that life was a lot easier for her because she didn't wear a headscarf or face veil. There is not a single one of my friends wearing a headscarf who has not faced multiple events of of discrimination and violence because of the headscarf. This moved her to co-found a grassroots feminist organization in Switzerland called Los Fulares Violetas. In English, the name translates to purple headscarves, purple symbolizing their alignment to the global brand of feminism. The purple headscarves fight Islamophobia's gendered abuse of Muslim women. And in 2016, 
they began gearing up for a major battle. That's when Swiss nationalists launched the initiative to ban burqas and niqabs, or full-face veils, all over the country. El Sheikh saw this as a provocation. Putting such a question into the polls means, uh, in practical terms, having a national debate for weeks and months about the validity and legitimacy of the Muslim presence in Switzerland. Swiss Muslims make up barely 5% of the resident population. And the attack on veils is not the first time they had seen their religion politicized. In 2009, Swiss voters passed a referendum banning the minaret, the tower where the muezzin calls for prayer. Ulrich Schluer, a member of the nationalist Swiss People's Party, told a Spanish reporter back then that radical Muslims use minarets to send this political message. We want to implement another law. We want to implement the Sharia. This fear of Sharia, or Islamic law, soon prompted some Swiss cantons to ban full-face veils in public spaces, even though only a few dozen women are known to wear them. Those bans were repeatedly challenged for years by a Swiss convert to Islam, Nora Illy. She was actually fined for wearing her niqab in public. They say to protect democracy, it is legitimate to ban my clothes, and therefore myself, from the public sphere. <laughs> That's Illy in a 2017 campaign titled You Won't Stop Me. My niqab, my choice. The video shows her hiking, skateboarding, boxing, eating pizza, and riding a motorcycle. It's like she's saying, look, I wear a niqab, but I'm just like you. Nora Illy died last year after a long battle with breast cancer. And just as the campaign to ban full face veils all over Switzerland was heating up. She was one of very, very few women in German-speaking Europe that actually publicly spoke about Islam in general, but like the face veil specifically. Women speaking publicly about their religion is very rare. That's Yanina Rashidi, a spokesperson of the Islamic Central Council of Switzerland, which was founded by Illy and her husband. The most important impact she had was that she encouraged Muslim women to be self-confident about their religion, to speak out if they um, experience discrimination or anything like that. This kind of, okay, there is somebody who is speaking for us and not about us. This is the essence of the council's fight against the referendum to ban the full face veil. Rashidi says the council created a short campaign video showing just how the ban would limit the rights of Muslim women. Nobody has the right to tell me which parts of my body he or she wants to see or not to see. Yet, Rashidi noticed that this sentiment was falling on deaf ears. The Swiss People's Party, the nationalists leading the charge for the countrywide burqa ban, barreled ahead with their campaign. They ran commercials about the dangers of radical Islam. They put out posters of veiled women with angry eyes. They said it was against the Swiss democratic social order. Seeing this all unfold around her was Valentina Weiss. Of course, it's ridiculous because I've never saw 
Weiss is another Swiss convert to Islam. She uses the name Um Rufaida, which means mother of Rufaida, her seven-month-old daughter. She says she's used to members of the far right vilifying women like her. Yeah, yeah, they want to scare the people. They want to show them, oh, can you see the woman with niqab? They are extremists, they are uh, radical, maybe they are terrorists, and they are really bad, and so on. Nationalists aren't the only ones who see Muslim women's veils as symbols of oppression. Inez El-Sheikh, the activist we met earlier, says she's facing an uphill battle convincing those she expected would support her. There were many women in feminist organizations that were saying that I cannot condone the fact that women wear burqas because burqa is anti-feminist by essence. For her, this Eurocentric approach patronizes Muslim women and overlooks the fact that not every woman defines agency in the same way. You imply that these women need to be freed from themselves if she cannot even decide correctly what to wear, how does she decide correctly what to vote, and how to lead her life in general. The purple headscarves got to work on analyzing the proposed ban. Some of us are legal experts, some of us are graphic designers, some of us are able to speak in public, some of us are social workers. And so we gathered and we said, what are all the skills we have here? And what can we do with all these skills? They compiled their work into a 25-page document that analyzed the proposed law in detail and spelled out why it would be a racist, sexist attack on women's rights. But she and other Swiss Muslim women were fighting strong anti-Islam headwinds in Europe. Several European countries, including France, which has one of the highest populations of Muslims in Europe, have passed similar bans. This debate on how Muslim women dress is also gaining momentum up north in Sweden, a destination for many Muslim refugees seeking asylum. The Sweden Democrats, a nationalist party, is leading the charge to ban headscarves in schools and public spaces. This is Eva Hermansen, the youngest member of the nationalist Sweden Democrats speaking in parliament. She tells me why she supports the headscarf ban. We have two groups whose rights are not aligned with each other. We have the group who wear it because they want to, and then we have the group who wears it because they are forced to. Sometimes you have to make a decision which, yes, it's going to inflict the freedom of one group, but perhaps help the other group. This didn't sit well with Matthias Lilholm, a principal in Skurup, a small municipality in southern Sweden. He refused to implement the ban of headscarves at his school. What I think that they actually is saying, they say, don't come here. We don't want you here. It's okay, you can live here. You can have any religion you want. You can be of any color you want, any culture, but don't show it. You have to look like a Swede. You have to live like a Swede. This idea that you can't be both a publicly devout Muslim and a European has essentially become the norm on the continent. And that's what Inez Elshich, the co-founder of the Purple Headscarves, saw this March when her own country, Switzerland, passed a countrywide ban on full-face veils with a 51.2% majority of votes. It's like you believed in something your whole life, like I'm just, you know, 
part of this country like anyone else. And you wake up one day finding that it was kind of an illusion that most of the people, if they had the choice of not seeing you in the street, in the classrooms, in the workplace, they, they would not have you there. Muslim women who go out in public wearing a full face veil, a niqab or burqa, will have to pay fees as punishment. And at least one Swiss woman who wears the niqab responded to that by leaving the country altogether. We met Umra Faida, also known as Valentina Weiss, earlier in this story. She moved to Egypt with her family after the referendum was passed. When they official banned the niqab, then I was really sad and was crying because, um, yeah, I have family in Switzerland. I grew up there. And as you can hear, it's still really emotional for me. Because I don't want to go to Switzerland because I don't want to take off my niqab. And I don't want to pay the fees because the fee is going to the government. And then what they're going to do with this money, they're going to fight the Islam and the Muslims more if they're treating me and my friends in that way, I don't want to be a part of it. Swiss lawmakers now have two years to draft the specifics of this legislation. El Sheikh says she hopes Swiss Muslim women will be a part of the conversation. What we've shown is that Muslim women can speak for themselves. So from now on, people who choose to not listen to us chose to not listen to us. You cannot say that you did not know that we could speak for ourselves. Her eyes light up when she talks. I can tell she's proud. When I ask her why she continues to fight, she quotes an Algerian writer, Tahar Jaoud. Si tu parles, tu meurs. Si tu te tais, tu if you meurs, talk, you die. Parle, and if you remain silent, you die, she quotes in French. So speak out and die. Because, she says... The nationalist war against Muslim women in Europe is far from over. What the hair look like? Bet the hair look nice. Don't that make you sweat? Don't that feel too tight? Yo, what your hair look like? Bet your hair look nice. How long your hair is? You need to get your life. So like 30 women in all of Switzerland wear burkas and this is what Swiss nationalists spent time and money trying to ban? Yeah, and that's what's infuriating for Inez as well. In fact, she used to play this song to motivate the staff and volunteers at her organization, Purple Headscarves, when they were campaigning against the referendum. Very nice. Who sings that? Her name is Mona Haidar, and she's actually a Syrian-American rapper, musician, and poet. The song's called Rap by Hijab. Many activists in Europe are saying that the burqa is just the first step in a culture war against women, and that the hijab or the headscarf might be next. Really? Because on the other side of the border, that's actually already happening. And it's not just headscarves. Right, you were telling me about this the other day. Yeah, as always, I was talking about food. So in France, the kebab, one of the country's most popular fast foods, has been repeatedly targeted for similar reasons. The French are very possessive about their cuisine. All that butter and cheese and croissants. Pain au chocolat, escargot. The French consider their cuisine the very best in the world. They have a complicated relationship with food from the rest of the world. 
like kebab shops, even though there are 500 of them in Paris alone. My older brother, Pato, knows this firsthand. I live 30 seconds walking from Notre Dame, like in the heart of Paris, and there's within a 100 meter radius of my house, maybe like five kebab vendors. Like, th there's one corner of my street where within eyesight you see three. Pato moved to Paris 18 months ago. Kebab was actually one of the first foods he tried. And I actually remember one of my American friends that came to visit me, visit me, she had never left the country, uh, the United States. And so when she came to Paris, I remember her mentioning like, oh, our kebab is French food, I see it everywhere, you know? Well, can it happen in a country where national identity is so militantly tied to its cuisine? Well, the short answer is no. <laughs> the French nationalists have actually vilified the kebab for years. Robert Ménard a également décidé de partir en guerre contre les vendeurs de kebab. Like this guy, Robert Ménard. Back in 2013, he was the mayor of the southern city of Béziers. He campaigned on a pledge to preserve what he called traditional Judeo-Christian values by banning kebab vendors from the city's historic center. The issue also came up in local elections in other cities, including the famously multicultural port city of Marseille. Nationalists try to make kebabs about patriotism. That's troubling. I have to wonder if anyone's keeping track of this. Yes, that would be Pierre Raffard, a French food geographer. So uh, do you have three hours? Because I, <laughs> I, I can talk about kebab during hours and hours. Pierre says nationalists seem fixated on kebabs. So they all the time uh, talk and criticize the immigrations. Uh, there are too many migrants, there are too many uh, immigrants in Europe, and they are, uh, let's say, uh, they make disappear our national cultures, etc. But what is very important is their targets are not, let's say, the sushi shops or the Mexican shops, the Mexican restaurants as well, or the pizzerias. Uh, they are the kebab shops. Why? Because actually the kebab shops uh, are a good way, let's say, to, um, to make understand what they consider Islamization of European society. You can hear the Islamophobia in this news footage. Supporters of Rassemblement National, the far-right nationalist party run by Marine Le Pen, are chanting, kebabs, mosques, we've had enough. In news reports, kebab vendors told journalists that they're protesting Muslims, not kebabs. But was it the Muslims who brought kebabs to France? Actually, Pierre told me that the first kebabs came from Greek immigrants. Then a lot of Turkish owners and now, actually, the Turkish owners disappears little by little. And you can find a lot of uh, Maghreb owners, Tunisian, Algerian, or uh, Moroccan. North Africans also brought couscous to France. And those tiny little dots of semolina are now a staple of Parisian cuisine. So why not kebabs? What would it take for foreign food to get a French passport? Exactly. I looked into that in France, and though my journey started with the kebab, it ended with something that claims to be a taco. So now that you've heard some background about the kebab and its fraught history in France, let me note that some of the newest kebab vendors in Paris aren't even immigrants. 
like this guy. So my name is uh, Noé. Um, I'm 27. I'm living uh, in Paris, and uh, I'm I'm French. <laughs> and uh, I am the owner and the founder of Gemuse Kebab. It's a special kind of kebab here in Paris. Uh, it was the first uh, Berliner-style kebab in France, so it's quite different from uh, the usual ones. Noé began his Berliner kebab shop in response to what he feels is a lack of high-quality kebabs in Paris. Although he doesn't think vendors must be Turkish or Greek to sell good kebabs, he says culture is somewhat part of the equation. It's lack of tradition. I think in France, for the last 20 years maybe, the people making the kebabs are not traditionally attached to this kind of uh, food. In France, most of the people doing kebab nowadays are Moroccans or Algerians or Tunisians. Um, they do it because it's cheap, because it's easy to make, and because um, the food has a really large reputation in France, so it's easy to sell and to make it understand. More than a lack of consistency in kebab quality, however, it is the kebab itself that remains contentious for many born and bred Parisians. People think kebab are really unhealthy. Some people think kebab are made by only immigrant people and if those uh, kind of uh, people are, are a little bit uh, racist, they think, oh, it's not French French food. This is um, la représentation d'une immigration en masse en France. It's the representation of mass immigration. That is what many French people believe. Yet, for those on the opposite end of the political aisle, the kebabs, a popular 1.9% billion-dollar industry just trailing burgers and pizza are also a sign of successful cultural integration. As Pierre explains... And for them, they consider that these restaurants, these ethnic restaurants, these foreign restaurants, are, let's say, the proof of multiculturalism, of a good multiculturalism. Look, you go to uh, Donner Kebab, you to, to Donner Kebab sellers, you go to Mexican restaurants, you go to sushi shops. Actually, what does it mean? That your, uh, let's say, your food ways, your food practices uh, have enriched a lot. But what happens when multiculturalism is taken to the extreme? So look at this behemoth. So this in my hand, I'm, I'm holding this monstrosity, this almost sacrilegious piece of food. Um, so like I said, it's basically a pound. Um, it fits in my hand. It's a flour tortilla that was wrapped and pressed. It looks like almost like with a panini machine. Enter the French tacos. <laughs> Inside of it, we'll see. Let me take a bite. No, oh, it's awful. There's fries inside. I forgot about that. So it looks, you can see um, there's sausage, there's fries, there's cheese, and there's chicken inside of it. Um, so not exactly the most elegant way of putting together a meal. Describing it as a cross between a burrito and a kebab, my brother says... It's an abomination because, you know, it's not any one place of food. It's like a mix of random things. Like, how could you put a falafel with French raclette on a Mexican tortilla with, like, fried chicken? You know, it's kind of offend offending everyone. 
The Otacos chain, one of the biggest vendors of French tacos, is everywhere in Paris. When a restaurant opened right across from the Mexican embassy nearby my brother's workplace, Pato, as a native Mexican, was aghast. I remember being angry. I was like, how dare they do this? Like, this is a blasphemy to my culture. And even my, when my American coworkers from California came, you know, they're like, wow, you're, they're letting that happen, you know? Um, and eventually when they, that restaurant closed down and we all like celebrated, you know, finally it's gone. My brother was not the only one who was angry. For Fausto Garduño, a Mexican chef who owns Anahuacalli, one of the few restaurants offering traditional Mexican cuisine in Paris, the French tacos are, simply put, offensive. No, no, no. Don't come to me tell me you are selling tacos if they are not tacos. I don't think so. Especially if you don't even have the basic to call them tacos. He feels it is up to the small Mexican community to educate France's locals and tourists alike on his culture. I do not agree with the idea, but well, I have also heard criticism from people who said that, hmm, on the other hand, well, what about the uh, crepes in Mexico? How do we prepare them, you know? I mean, we put everything in them and we make them completely different. So, I mean, Different cultures. Everybody's adapting to a type of food, and it's respected. But I think the main point is, that it's up to us Mexicans to say, that is not a taco. Yet, he says, the French tacos, a six-euro meal packing a high-calorie punch, has presented steep competition in the restaurant business, rapidly rising to become one of the most popular dining options in France. I mean, you give the French a taco that they like, and that seems more like their culture, well, of course they're going to accept it much more. So, is cultural appropriation what it takes to make a food less of a threat to the country's national identity? According to Lauren Collins, a New Yorker writer who recently published an in-depth piece on the French tacos phenomenon, says it's more than that. You know, if we say, like, political football in America, I think in France you could pretty fairly say like a political kebab. I mean, it's just been this kind of vessel of um, projection for so many different um, ideologies and kind of political debates. The French tacos, on the other hand. It seeks to project like a very different image than, well, both kind of in its image and its and in its aesthetic, um, it seems to have bypassed a lot of the debates that have surrounded the kebab. Like if you go into any of the big French tacos chains, there's a very explicitly kind of very, you know, in French, they would say a pure but like very clean, modern look with no reference to any particular cultural heritage, whether that would be North African or Mexican. In other words, I quote in the piece, um, there's a master's student who did her entire thesis on the French tacos, but she calls it either an acultural or a multicultural product. Um, but the idea is supposed to be, you know, anybody could could eat this. Pierre, the food geographer, agrees. I'm really sure there won't be any uh, political use of, taco, of tacos because tacos 
uh, is presented as French, even if it's, it's not French. Uh, tacos, it's not French. Uh, what there is inside is not really French. But there is not an ethnic reference to any kind of cult uh, foreign cultures. Much like the French tacos, the kebabs are particularly popular in the banlieue, or the suburbs on the outskirts of the city proper. So actually, because they are the only shop, because they are also, for the young people, the only social places where they can meet, where they can make jokes, when they can, they can, they can flirt with their girlfriends or their boyfriends. Actually, the kebab shops has become a kind of, we say, institution. You can find a lot of references about kebab in the rap music. For example, there is a song, Salad Tomatognon, something like that, uh, which is a song by a very uh, famous rap singer called Booba. Or, as Noé, the French kebab vendor, explains. So in France, you're going to find this dish in the suburbs. You're going to find the kebab in the working-class neighborhoods. And these two aspects, the aspect that it's a dish brought by immigrants and the aspect that it's a dish served to immigrants, if I can use a phrase like that, make it, in people's minds, a low-end dish, bad for health and which favors the presence of immigration in France. Yet, he says, the dish is unique in its very ability to assimilate but not lose its cultural essence. If you eat a kebab in France, it will not be the same as in Germany. And in Germany, it will not be the same as in Turkey. And in Turkey, it will not be the same as in Mexico. And every country is going to have its own interpretation of a kebab because it's going to be a mix between two cultures. It's not a culture that just comes in and replaces the existing culture. It's a culture that comes in and adapts to the existing culture. That story is so interesting. I hadn't realized how contentious food can be. I know I'm never going to look at a kebab the same way again. Or a taco. <laughs> and that wraps up episode one. This episode, called Not One of Us, was reported by me, Srishti Kosh, and me, Regina Lankenau. We'd like to thank a few people for help with this episode. For my story, I'd like to thank Inez El Sheikh, Yanina Rashidi, Valentina Weiss, Ebba Hermanson, and Matthias Lieldholm for speaking to me. And for my story, I'd like to thank my brother, Pato Lankenau, and my dad, Patricio Lankenau, for providing a voiceover. Also, Noe, Pierre Raffard, Lauren Collins, and Fausto Garduño for speaking to me. Additional voiceovers by Ader Peralta and Duri Boos Karen. We'd also like to thank Professor Kakissis for her guidance in the reporting process. Music in this episode is by Mona Haidar on 5 and TBA. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> we're doing that again anyway, so thanks for listening. <laughs> Music in this episode is by Mona Haidar, Nick Proteus, and Steve Rice. The rendition of France's national anthem, La Marseillaise, is by Mireille Mathieu. Lil Maz sang the French kebab song, and that was the late Joe Dassin singing about pain au chocolat. The a cappella jazz and opera rendition of Beethoven's Ode to Joy, which is also the European Union's anthem, is by Camille Durand and Emily Ta. 
and thanks to Anders Lillebo for the Scandinavian folk music. We also used archive audio in this episode from Sweden's Parliament TV, the VJ Movement, France 2, and the French edition of the Huffington Post. Thanks for listening. Now we'll go to our classmate Luke Maurer for the series credits. Thanks, Sisti and Regina. Shifting Borders is a podcast series created by the students of Princeton University's Spring 2021 International Journalism class. Our supervising producer is Joanna Kakissis, a Spring 2021 Visiting Ferris Professor of Journalism. Our assistant producer is Francesca Block. An associate of Hindenburg Systems mixed our episodes, with additional mixing by Francesca Block on episodes 3, 4, and 5. The McGraw Center's Ben Johnston helped us get this series online and onto a podcast platform. Juliana Wojtenko designed the podcast artwork. Eric Sutherland composed Supercontinental, which we used as the Shifting Borders theme music. Special thanks to Joe Stevens, Marco Bresnan, and Deborah Amos of the Princeton Journalism Program, as well as Kathleen Crown of the Humanities Council. They support student-driven projects like these, even during a pandemic, when we had to do nearly all of our reporting remotely. We would also like to thank the many exceptional journalists from around the world who spoke to our class via Zoom this semester, and whose words of advice helped shape our stories. They include Ader Peralta, Lulu Garcia-Navarro, Mark Lowen, Daniel Estrin, Martha Wexler, Sally Hayden, Daniel Trilling, Riham Alcusa, Andras Peto, Will Dobson, Jess Jang, and Derek Arthur. Our next episode, episode two, is called Home is Where the Heart Is. It's about the elements we need to build a home. Things like family, friendship, community, and sanctuary. It's hosted by Anna Lubaskaya and Sophie Singletary. I'm Luke Maurer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>